Good morning. Hi, my name is Ben, one of the pastors here at Oak Church. You have a copy of the scriptures? Turn, tap your way. We're going to be in Ephesians chapters 2 and 3, and then 2 again, then 3 again. You're going to have to be uh, on your toes. We're going to be a little all over the place. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures, please don't panic. We'll have those words on the screens for you. Uh, but we'd love to give you a copy of the scriptures in a modern English translation. If you don't have one, it is, uh, obviously the Bible's life-changing, but having one in like your heart language that's a little easier to read really is life-changing. We want to help you out if we can. So today we're starting this new series on recharge, and I think we all feel the need for it. Uh, you can have COVID and have come out of COVID as an individual, but we're experiencing that sort of as a community. We're communally coming out of COVID together. And there's been an experience. When you're sick like that, you lose a lot. You're bored. You lose a lot of weight. Maybe, hopefully you lose weight. Generally, I don't lose belly weight. I just lose like muscle weight. And so the scale is going down, but I'm fatter somehow and gaunt and my eyes are sunken. You, you feel like you've lost some things you needed. You certainly missed some things you wanted. But you come out the other side of it, and it's like a pruning is taking place. When you're sick like that, something that was bad is lost, but, but you kind of lose some other stuff too. Maybe you lose some, some of the frivolousness. You lose some of maybe the giddiness of life. And you need to kind of gain that back. I want to be happy again. I want us as a group to be happy again. Not just, how you doing? Great. Ha ha. And keep moving. But like really down in your bones, joyful, giddy, happy again. How do we get that? I'm concerned for the heavy lifting that is required of us as a church to go out in the community and change things, to get into your own life and marriage and family and change things for the glory of God. And the effort that that takes, I'm concerned that you don't have the strength. And it's not because you're not more, better, or more interesting, or whatever. It's because you're not tapping into the strength that God is giving us all the time, that we are not recharging the way that we're supposed to. So we're going to take some time to do that. And we're going to start where kind of God's been doing this in my heart over the last couple of weeks with, with James. So I know I said Ephesians, but real quickly, we're going to go to James 1 where it says... Yeah, sorry. Uh, it's just on the screen, okay? You know, if you're taking notes, whatever. But uh. All right, James 1 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For, now, if you've gotten this far in the verse and you're actually reading it, you should be waiting with bated breath. Look what he's saying. He's saying to get all joy... Woo, I'm excited joy when I meet trials of various kinds. That's not what happens. When I meet trials, I don't feel joy. I feel anger or sadness or resentment. When I have trials, though, this is saying to feel joy. Why? And then he tells you that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Did you hear that, gang? Steadfastness. 
I hope you're not too holy to feel the whomp whomp of that verse saying that you should feel joy in all kinds of trials because you get steadfastness. I've had to put on my suit too many times in the last couple of weeks to be able to say that with any conviction. If you're new to Hope Church, I only put on my suit for like weddings and funerals. And I've had to put on my suit a couple of times recently for funerals. I haven't been able to walk into those rooms and say to people, hey, count this all joy. You're about to get some more steadfastness. I don't know if you could. This verse has always been profoundly disappointing to me personally and pastorally. I'm just going to confess that. And yet, I will say there is an answer to it. And my hope is to find that answer with you in Ephesians 3, to plug these two passages together, to see it, and then to get to a place where not only do we thank God for verses like James, where he's talking about this steadfastness, and not only do we thank God for the steadfastness, but we will actually choose to make parts of our life more difficult, doing things that God commands us to do, and yet we don't want to do, but we do, choosing hard things because... We're incentivized by even this steadfastness. Because again, it sounds like the thing that you don't want. There used to be a thing in Christian circles where we would have people take spiritual gift inventories. Yeah. Uh, you, you'd go through, it's sort of like a janky personality test. And you go through and you'd write out what you want your gift to be because you can see through the questions pretty obviously. <laughs> you, <laughs> like it'd be the question about like, but are you really generous with your money? <laughs> No, because <laughs> you don't want to get the, at the end of the test and have them say, your spiritual gift is giving, ah, you know, and you got to go up a percentage point. No. So you could sort of see through it and you try it and all of a sudden everybody's gift at the end of it would be like hospitality or teaching or singing or something. And you could say, no, that is not your gift. My wife, unfortunately, because she's a very honest person, would take the test and she would always get back that her two gifts were administration and long-suffering. <laughs> we always joke those were the two worst ones because, yeah, I mean, they were. This, though, is talking about steadfastness, this long-sufferingness. Let's understand the appeal. So in Ephesians chapter 3, these are going to be sort of the lodestone verses for this whole series on recharge. Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 14. It says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. He's saying... 
that the Apostle Paul prays for this church in Ephesus, that the Holy Spirit has guided a spiritual leader of a spiritual community to pray this thing, that God would strengthen them with power, that they might be so rooted and so grounded that they can endure, that they can have strength to comprehend just how magnificent God's love is for us. That they would be strengthened and rooted in order to be able to be filled with all the fullness of God. He's saying that there's some things about God's love you can get immediately. You can see it as you walk in the door of Christianity. You can understand something on day one. And yet, you are just way too weak to ingest the goodness of God's love until he strengthens you up. He's got to thicken you up. He's got to ground you down. He's got to make you strong enough to feel just how magnificent his love is. And we get this already in some ways. You see this in other places in your life. There are some pleasures that require a lot of work to feel. Running is not fun for a year. But then it starts to kind of be fun. Mountain biking is not fun for a long time. I went mountain biking with some guys. They let me use one of their bikes. And I thought this was going to be great. This is one of the things you do in Utah, Corner Canyon, world class. Let's go. I was scared out of my wits, but I knew that, like, maybe it's just scary, but it's not really. Like, it feels scary for you, but no, this is just how it feels. You know, you kind of will eventually get used to it and get excited about the adrenaline. And then I realized it was scary because of the way I was doing it when I noticed that my friends who are like, you know, had done it a lot, were watching me with like giant eyes, and they were really scared for me with the way I was driving the bike. We were going through burns in Corner Canyon, berms in Corner Canyon, and I came up to one, and I was going so slow because I knew that that was safer. It's not. And then I got up to the top of it, and I just disappeared. I just fell off the other side, and from my friend's perspective, I just was gone. He just knew that his pastor had just died off the side of the, and it was okay. I was fine. But it took a long time to get enough skill, enough trust in the bike, enough understanding of what's happening in the the trail that you're on for you to really get that thrill, the feeling of flying. It is worth it, but it takes time to get there. There's a training that has to take place. There's, There's something that you have to know about music in order to enjoy music at a greater level. Anybody can just hear music and get excited about it. It's that powerful. But the more that you learn, the more that you endure, the more that you try to not just understand about the theory of music, but even the practice of music, the playing of music. A musician, they've done these fMRIs where they'll watch the brain of a, a musician listening to music. If they watched my brain listening to music, they would see the sort of animal pleasure part of my brain saying, like, this is a good thing, but I don't know anything else about it. But if they could listen, watch Josh's brain as he listens to music, yes, he would be feeling the pleasure of the music, but his, his other side of his brain would be all lit up because he would also understand the, the mechanical piece, the composition piece, the, the mechanics of why they did this instead of that and how that would work on this instrument instead of that. He would have a fuller knowledge that he had to earn over hours and hours of practice and study. We know this in our relationships. You have loving relationships with people 
that over time become richer and deeper. You, you needed the time together. You needed the ups and the downs in order to feel. You know, I think a child gets a lot of joy out of the parent. But from the parent's perspective, with all the pain and all the difficulty and all the up and all the down, I think we feel a great deal more pleasure looking at them. Maybe early in a marriage, you get all the joy of seeing each other and, and the thrill that this person likes me back and, and you love one another and you've got these sort of sparks. But over the decades, as you stand through difficult times together, as you weather the dry periods together and then come back and realize again that you're still together, that you still love each other, that you still know each other. It goes deeper. It gets fuller. Imagine what you would need in order to understand more fully God's love. Thinking about receiving God's love at a deeper level. You already got it in Christ, but understanding it at a more deep level, experiencing it at a more deep level, what would you be willing to go through to get that? Let's see it a little bit more clearly. Paul, he's talking about this. He's praying for the people. And he begins by saying, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Now, what is that reason? We're just jumping into Ephesians 3. But there was an Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2 and a back half of Ephesians 3 that's talking about something before he even gets into this part. And we need to understand that. We want to see it. What his reason is, the thing that he's been talking about, is God's reconciling work through Christ and our part in that work. The big sort of theme in Ephesians that's specific beyond just the gospel is the way that he's bringing together Jews and Greeks. But the overarching, the big, big, big news is the reconciliation that's going on between God and us. Very famously, Ephesians chapter 2 says... You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind." I say reconciled because we were separated. It's saying that there was between us a barrier like the barrier between life and death. That we actually weren't following God, we were following a different leader. We were actually marching behind the Lord's great enemy. We were separated by life and death. We were separated by allegiance. We were called children of wrath rather than children of God. The, the second part of Ephesians 2 has this other retelling of the same story. It says in verse 12, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Totally without God, therefore totally without hope. However, but, Ephesians 2, 13 says, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
said another way earlier in the chapter, four and five. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Far away, alienated, hopeless, separated, but brought near because of his great love. Enemies made children, dead made alive. That day you become his, you wake up and you wake up not only to his face, but also to the family business. Don't look past this. It's very clear that we're not saved by our works. It says in 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. It's not a result of works so that no one may boast. You don't bring anything to heaven. You don't bring anything to God and present to him your goodness and your works. And then he deems, okay, then I will adopt you as my son. No, of course not. And yet... Though we're saved by faith, once saved, it jumps immediately. Now, I don't know how many people just skipped this verse, but Ephesians 2.10 says, We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he's prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There's this juggling act that we have to do where we have to realize that I'm not saved by my works, but once I'm saved, once I'm his, He immediately equips me and sends me on labor, work, things to do for other people, for his glory, for my good. He's laid out works for me to do. In the second half of Ephesians 2, we're kind of bouncing back and forth between these two gospel presentations. It says, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're now fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So I'm I'm trying to build this out. I'm trying to understand this. I'm trying to see why would it matter that I'm going to be steadfast? What does it mean that I want to be somebody who sticks, who has a long-sufferingness in this relationship with God and what he's doing in and through me? Well, it says here that when he makes me his own, he puts me like a brick into a building. A building that's being built together as a holy temple. A building that is growing with its foundations. Not just on these people that we read about in Scripture, the apostles and the prophets, but cornerstone itself on Christ. That's really important. That matters to understanding who we are and where our strength comes from. Where our, our, our recharging comes from. This isn't just a general principle. Paul talks about it. Ephesians 3, he's talking about himself. And he says, of this gospel, I wasn't just invited in to experience. I was invited in and then made a minister of, according to the gift of God's grace, not the condemnation of God, that he had to go out and make all these disciples and get beaten left, right, and center, but that he was made a minister according to God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. So, why does Paul pray for us to be strengthened? 
It's because we can't see God yet. You go back to the Old Testament, there's a place for this guy Moses. And in the Old Testament, there's really nobody with a bigger name than Moses. Abraham, maybe. But Moses was a big deal. He lived to be 120, and he got like really busy as a prophet at like age 80. God deliver us from that, right? I'm ready to be done at like 70 or earlier, much less getting started at 80 and then have 40 years of that kind of work. And yet, this Moses guy was said of him that there was nobody more humble in the world than Moses. He didn't say that about himself. It wouldn't work. But other people said that about him. And one moment where God says he's going to do what he wants him to do, that he's going to give Moses grace, Moses says, okay, well, what, what I would love, Lord, is to see your face. There's another big statement of Moses' greatness is that he understood the highest thing, the best thing, the most pleasurable thing that he could have. It's not to have a life with less worry in it. It's not to have a ministry with less difficulty in it. It was to see God's face. And God grants it sort of. He has to make changes in Moses' request because even to Moses, he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. You ever go camping? You start a campfire and you're way out in the boonies? All kinds of weird stuff starts coming up to the the flame. You ever have a cabin? You turn on the light, like the outside lights, like kind of at the corners of the cabin. You ever walk out there late at night? And see what kind of things are drawn to that light? Like monsters and aliens. Like I've seen bugs in real life, but sometimes you go, especially in like a temperate zone, so maybe not always in the desert. But, but when you get the fire going and you turn the little light on, these things that come out, oh, they look like they're from another planet, disgusting and gigantic. And they're drawn to the light, but they can only come so far. They're drawn to the flame, but they can only get so close. And we're exactly like that. We're drawn to this flame. We see something about God that draws us to it, and yet we're repelled at the same time. There's something in us that doesn't belong. There's something in us that cannot handle that gloriousness, that beauty, that strength, that light, that heat. Unless we're changed. Unless we're strengthened. Unless there's some process that God puts us through that brings us into a state where we can take that one next step closer, that one next step further up and further into his glory and his light. That's why Paul prays what we've been talking about. That we might be strengthened in order to endure something more of the length and breadth and depth and height of God's love. God's love isn't just like a kiss. It's more like a hurricane. Can you stand before it? God's holiness is not just the warmth of the sun on a cool fall morning. It's the blazing intensity of the sun if you're trying to stand on it. Can you endure it? No, if we are to endure it, it's got to be because we are built on the cornerstone of Christ himself. 
Ephesians 2. So Paul doesn't just talk about us trying to stand before God with our own holiness. No. We're cleansed by the blood of Christ. When we come before him and we ask for forgiveness, we're cleansed, we're made new in him. And then, like it says in Ephesians 2, 19 to 22, we're no longer strangers and aliens, but we're fellow citizens and saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, built on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ himself. So let's put this together. You're going to finish today and walk out of here, and who knows what messages are already on your phone? Who knows what emails are already in your inbox? Who knows what ways in which your life is already breaking or getting hard again? Maybe you don't need anything new. Maybe you're walking out of here with the same pain you walked in here with, and it's crushing. Hey, if so, do you understand that you are like a stone that is set on Christ, this cornerstone? So as God allows more weight to be put on you, all he's doing is pushing you closer in, further onto, more steadily on this cornerstone. Let's be less abstract. If you are about to feel something that's really suffering, when you go back to Christ and you see him and you bring him that suffering, he's already there. He's already endured suffering after suffering, trials of various kinds. And when you go through those same trials, you find that he's already ahead of you, still there with you, hemming you in behind, a cornerstone, solid in your foundation. When you go feeling pain, experiencing pain, you realize when you go to Christ with that pain that he's still there. That he felt that pain with you. That he experienced greater pain for you. That he is bringing you through it. And that he is creating. He's not going to waste it. That he's creating in you a greater dependence. That the, the weight of that pain is just pushing you more firmly into the mortar that connects you to that cornerstone. Man, when you experience temptation, do you know Jesus was tempted too? He's still there. He's still ahead of you. When you rely on him in that temptation, you find that even then he's got resources for you because he experienced the same thing. Let's make it less severe. When you just feel frustration, maybe you are going to actually try and do something for the kingdom, for other people, try to build Christ in his name, and you go about that experience, and you find that it's awful. What was Moses' hardest thing in his life? It wasn't living in the wilderness. It wasn't walking before Pharaoh with a speech impediment. It wasn't all the stuff that came with just sort of being 80 and starting your ministry. The hardest part for him was the people of God. He's constantly wishing that God would take away these people because they're awful and they're complaining. And then as soon as they're done complaining, they're accusing. And as soon as they're done accusing, they're going off to sacrifice to bull idols when he's gone. Ten minutes. You don't have to read much of the story to find how they are just constantly this source of frustration. You'll feel the same thing if you go about trying to lead people towards Christ. And when you feel that frustration, you can pass it on because you'll find that that cornerstone beneath you is still there, that he went 
before you, that (laughs) Jesus' experience, even with just the 12 apostles, is absolutely as frustrating. And every time you're going to be strengthened because more of what he has declared you to be becomes true. He said you are his son. He said you are his daughter. He said that he's never going to leave you or forsake you. And in that moment, you experience that it's still true. And you gain just that little bit more strength, just that little bit more steadfastness, just that little bit more strength to endure the love of God. If you can flip the equation and see it the way that the scriptures see it, then you find that even your pain, though it comes in a million different ways, can lead you to the knowledge of the goodness and faithfulness of God. That God can use even these struggles to bring about in that pain confidence that you might be filled more fully with the fullness of God. Now, in the next several weeks, we're going to talk about lots of different ways, not just trials. We're going to talk about the ways in which you recharge yourself, that you plug into God and receive that strength and that invigoration. So come back. But for today, begin by just asking yourself very seriously that question, am I a brick that is set on that cornerstone? Is my life based on anything other than my assurance of my salvation in Christ? Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, I do ask that you would help us to be honest and perceptive about ourselves, that we might know more fully exactly who we are and where we stand before you. Lord, we need to be founded on you. There's nothing else that's going to work. There's nowhere else we can turn that will actually be able to get us through the ups and downs that life has, much less the death that comes for us all. Father, I pray that you would please found us fully on you. Let us be stones set on the cornerstone that never moves. Pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.